exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. You're shining your light, and you shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. If you're a fan of Johnny Cash, you might have heard those lyrics before. But even if you've never heard that song, you're probably familiar with the thought. Are Christians so concerned with the afterlife that we're really no good in this life? Well, I certainly know some Christians who are. All of us probably know those Christians. And when I say those Christians, I mean the kind of Christian who's just hiding out in their little bunker and waiting for Jesus to come back. We talked last week about why that is not a good way to live. That Jesus left us here to be in the world, but not of the world. But I'd argue that the people who are the most earthly good are exactly those people who are the most heavenly minded. In the words of C.S. Lewis, hope is a virtue. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffectual in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. End quote. You see, the guy who hides out waiting for Jesus to return actually is not being heavenly minded at all. He's so concerned with what can happen to him in this life that he's actually missing out on the eternal consequences of his life. I know most of us are not stockpiling guns and rations, but let me ask, what is your mind focused on? Do you worry about your finances? Do you worry about your future? Are you living like there's no tomorrow? Or are you hoping that the end comes as quickly as possible? We have a very limited time here on earth, but if you and all the people around you are going to be around forever, then have you wrestled with that reality? And now how has that reality changed the way that you live? Well, my prayer for us this morning is that we would embrace the heavenly mindset of Jesus in John 17. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to be picking up in verse 20 as we come to the last section of Jesus' final prayer before he was betrayed. Remember, this all started back in John 13 when Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples and he bent down and he washed his disciples' feet. And then Judas was sent away, and we heard for four chapters some of the sweetest and most tender teachings of Jesus as he taught his disciples for the final time before he went to the cross. And in this prayer of Jesus, we're going to find three final requests of Jesus. If you take John 17 and you look at the whole chapter, if you look at the big picture of the chapter, you'll find that Jesus makes seven requests in this chapter. 
Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus asked to be glorified at the cross and glorified in heaven. And last week, we heard Jesus asked that his disciples would not lose their salvation and that they would be made holy. But in verses 20 through 26, we find that the final three requests of John 17 are this. The first in verses 20 through 23 is that Jesus prays that the church would be unified. In verse 24, Jesus prays that the church would see his glory. And in verses 25 and 26, Jesus prays that the church would succeed. Jesus prayed that the church would be unified, that we would see his glory, and that we would succeed. So let's pray and we'll dive into the final section of this glorious prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to your word seeking to become more like Jesus. So we ask that by the power of the Spirit, we may be sanctified in the truth. For your word is truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Stop right there. Once again, if you step back and you look at the big picture of John 17, you'll see a clear structure to Jesus' prayer. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself and his glory. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his 11 disciples who are in the room. And in these last seven verses, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus knew that his word, that his message, that his gospel would be passed on. He knew that the work that he began would not end with these 11, but he knew that billions would eventually come to believe through their word. Jesus did not go to the cross with an attitude of defeat. He did not go to Calvary with his fingers crossed in an atmosphere of hopeful optimism saying, Boy, I sure hope this sacrifice saves somebody. No. Jesus knew he would be victorious. That's why he doesn't pray for all who might believe through the apostles' word, but all who will believe. And think about that for a second. The mass majority of the people Jesus is praying for in verse 20 have not yet been born. Think about what the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. When Jesus died, he wasn't just dying for sin in general. He wasn't just dying for the world in general. When Jesus went to the cross, I'm sure that he had the names and the faces of all who would believe in his heart and on his mind. And if you're a believer, he had you on his heart. And in his mind, he was praying for you here in verse 20. Don't let that pass you by, church. Jesus is praying for you here in John 17. And guess what? He lives to pray for you as we speak. Today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying now for all whom the Father has given him. And let me tell you that he will not cease to pray till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And let that reality encourage you today. Jesus lives to pray for you. 
In the words of that old Puritan, Robert Murray McShane, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And listen to how Jesus prays for us. Verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Back in verse 11, we heard Jesus pray that his disciples would be one. But he clarifies here in verse 21, he doesn't just want the apostles to be one, but the whole church to be one. But once again, what Jesus is asking for sounds unbelievable to our ears. He prays that we would be one as the triune God is one. Is that even possible? What does Jesus mean when he asks that we be one as he and the Father are one? Well, first off, this obviously does not mean that we become God like Jesus and the Father are God. In fact, Jesus never became one with the Father. He has always been one with God the Father from eternity past. We saw that in verse 5 when Jesus said that the Father worshipped Jesus, that the Father gave him glory before the world existed. So what is Jesus asking for? Jesus is asking that we, as Christians, would mirror the unity of our triune God. A lot of times when we study the Trinity, we treat it like we would treat a boring subject like chemistry. Like it's mildly interesting, but overall useless information. But that's not the way John saw the Trinity That's not the way Jesus saw the Trinity. In fact, we're taught the Trinity not just so that we could have a better and more glorious understanding of God, but so that we could have a perfect example of how we are to live as a church. In the Trinity, the Father is never jealous of the Son. In the Trinity, the Spirit never gossips of the Father. In the Trinity, the Son is always giving glory to the Father and to the Spirit. In the Trinity, we see an otherworldly unity and love that should now mark us as the people of God. Did you see that in verse 21? Why does Jesus pray that we may be one so that the world may believe that God has sent Jesus? You see, when we walk in unity, the world will notice and it will be such a powerful testimony that not only will they notice, but some will believe. When you take a group of people who normally would not like one another and they live in a unified and loving way, that is a powerful testimony to a world that is naturally disunified. And I I hear what you're thinking. That sounds great on paper. But if you've been on the church for long, you probably know that many churches today are marked by disunity and division. In fact, you probably know that there's more denominations that you can count. And within those denominations, there's a lot of infighting. And within individual churches, if you haven't been a part of a church split, you at least know someone who has been through one. If our church was a community marked by otherworldly unity and love, that would be incredible. Anyone in here not want that? So how do we become 
that kind of community that mirrors triune love. We'll look to verses 22 through 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. We'll stop right there. The key to becoming a church marked by otherworldly unity and love is in verse 22. The glory that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus has now given to us so that we may be one. So what on earth does that mean? Once again, first off, the glory Jesus is talking about in verse 22 is not the glory that Jesus talked about in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus was talking about the glory he shared with God the Father before the world was made. But in verse 24, Jesus is going to pray that we may one day in the future see the glory of verse 5 in heaven. Verse 24 says that Jesus, or verse 22 I should say, says that Jesus has already past tense given us the glory that we may be one. So, So do you see that? Verse 24, we will see that glory one day. Verse 22, we have received a glory. So what is the glory Jesus gives us? It's not the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. I think the glory Jesus is talking about is the glory of the gospel. If you remember how this book started all the way back in chapter 1, John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why if you look back at verse 3 of John 17, Jesus told us the Father had given Jesus authority so that he could give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given him. I think that's the glory that Jesus is talking about here in verse 22. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But instead of glorifying him, we have lived our lives for our own glory. Instead of enjoying him, we've sought pleasure and happiness in anything and everything this world has to offer. Instead of following his commands, we have rebelled against his rule and his authority. And we have all done what is right in our own eyes. And because God is infinitely glorious, he must punish those who practice evil. And that's all of us, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is terrible news. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus came to save sinners. The eternal second person of the Trinity, truly God from all of eternity, took on flesh and became truly man in every way you and I are, except never ceasing to be God. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live, and then he died the death we all deserved. That on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God and became a substitute for all who would believe. And then he was buried. But three days later, he gloriously rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he is praying for his church to this very hour. And today, 
If you believe this gospel, this good news, then you will have received the glory Jesus is talking about in verse 22. If you repent of your sins and put your faith alone in Jesus, then today you will have eternal life. And listen, church, though you and I deserve death and hell for our sins, look at what we get in verse 23. At the end of verse 23, we're told that the Father loves us even as he loves Jesus. How is that possible? Because we have been united with Christ through faith so that all of our sins nailed to the cross. All of Christ's righteous deeds given to our accounts. And now the Father looks at you and I with the same love and approval and acceptance with which he looks upon his only begotten son. Today, if that's you, if you have believed in this gospel and you have trusted only in Jesus for your salvation, then you have been adopted into the family of God. Now God is no longer your judge, but your father, Jesus, your elder brother, the church, your family. And that's why the glory Jesus gives leads to our unity with one another. Because the gospel brings us into the family of God. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And listen to me, church. God has answered his prayer through the cross. When Jesus died, he established unity among all those the Father had given him. Our unity has been accomplished past tense in the cross of Jesus. That's why in Colossians, we're told that in Christ, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ. That's why in the book of Ephesians, Paul does not command the church, be unified. No. He commands the church to maintain the unity of the spirit. He tells us there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. The question for us is not, are we unified? Christ has already achieved our unity The question now is this, will you maintain the unity of Christ, which Christ died to establish? Will you recognize the unity you already possess with the other believers in this room and now walk in it? Now, this does not mean that we sweep sin under the rug because all that matters is unity. Remember that just a few verses ago in verse 17, Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy in the truth. If you have a brother or sister living in a way that clearly contradicts the word of God, then Matthew 18 commands us to go to them privately and urge them to repent. Maintaining the unity of the spirit doesn't mean sweeping sin under the rug. It means that the gospel is the foundation for everything we do as a church. That when you go to a brother or sister who's in sin, you're not bitter against them. But you remember that Jesus loves them and has died for them. That when you have a brother or sister who apologizes to you and they ask for forgiveness, that you forgive them as Jesus has forgiven you. That when you have a disagreement about things that are not in the Bible, let it go. 
because it isn't important. And when you have a disagreement about things in the Bible, respect your brother or sister for their desire to understand and live out the commands of Jesus, even if they understand things differently than than you do. Last week, I was at a preaching conference, and I was hanging out with a great brother who's named Ned Suffren. He's the pastor at Redeemer Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, Ned is an incredibly godly man. He's a fantastic preacher. If I can ever get him here to preach on a Sunday morning, I would love that. I think you guys would enjoy his preaching. I'm really not sure if there's anyone in the Adirondacks I trust more than Ned to come and preach at this church. But you know what? He and I could never work together at a church. He and I could never pastor together. Why not? Because I don't believe you should baptize babies. And he believes that the scriptures commands that he should. Am I mad at him? No. Do I think he's being unbiblical? Yeah. But I also recognize that Ned is coming from a place where he's seeking to be faithful to the scriptures and what he believes it says. And honestly, I respect him. I see where he's coming from. I just disagree. You see, this passage in John 17 is not teaching that every Christian will act the same or think the same or look the same or even belong to the same denomination. No, this passage is teaching that we are one because we have the same gospel. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity means that the, in, the, in the essentials of the faith, we are one. I have wonderful friends who are Pentecostal or Presbyterian or Wesleyan or Anglican. And we've got some big disagreements. But I have far more in common with my brothers who disagree with me on secondary matters than with any Baptist who doesn't believe in the gospel. I've met Christians who are different ages, different races, from different countries, who spoke different languages, all of whom I've gotten to enjoy a sweet unity with because we have the same Savior. So let me ask you, church, can you be united with people who are not like you, even a little bit? Can you love those who are a different skin color? Those who are a different nationality, those who speak a different language, those who are just not like you at all. And let me tell you this morning, with triune love, you can. I think even in our culture, the last acceptable form of discrimination is ageism. That for some reason, it's perfectly acceptable to be prejudiced and hateful against someone based upon which generation they were born in. I'll tell you what, in our society, it's almost an undeniable fact that baby boomers hate millennials and millennials hate baby boomers. But can we be the kind of church that loves one another regardless of generation? If we can, that would be a powerful testimony to the watching world. Let me ask, if you're from the Adirondacks, can you love someone who's not? Can you love city people? If you're not from here, can you love those who are from here? Let me ask a question that is typically the hardest, at least I've seen in the Adirondacks. Can you love someone? Can you love those people who are from Word of Life? Now, I'll tell you, I don't agree with everything Word of Life does. But when we get people from Word of Life who come here and want to commit themselves to this church, 
Can you be one with them as Jesus is one with the Father? Can you love one another as Jesus has loved you, even if the only thing you have in common is the gospel? When we take our eyes off the glory of the gospel and focus on the things of this world, that's when we fail to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But if our eyes are on Jesus and the glory of his gospel, then our unity will be a powerful testimony to the unbelieving world. And I think that's why Jesus prays for us to be with him in heaven next. He prays for us to be unified, but to keep our eyes on the prize. That's Jesus also prays for us to see his glory. Look with me to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here we hear that phrase Jesus keeps using over and over again, all who the Father has given him. And here he's praying not just that they would believe, but that they would make it all the way home. There are people right now who are living in darkness with no desire to come to Jesus. But let me tell you, they belong to God. The Father has given them to the Son and they will believe and they will make it all the way to glory. God knows everyone who will believe. And here Jesus is praying that none of them lose their salvation, but they all make it to heaven. We saw this in the book of Acts when Paul had been facing severe persecution and he had arrived in the pagan city of Corinth and he was discouraged. There were very few believers there. But God spoke to Paul and he said, do not worry, keep on preaching, for I have many people in the city. How is it possible that God had many people in Corinth, even though almost no one believed? Because God knows his sheep. He knows who he has chosen. He knows who he has given to Jesus. He knows who will come and that should encourage us. That right now there are people in Brant Lake who though they are living in darkness, they belong to God, they will come to Jesus and they will make it all the way home. There are people right now in the Adirondacks and the Father has given them to Jesus and Jesus is praying here that they would make it all the way to glory. As Christians, we do not live with the fear that Christ or his church will fail. Because we're guaranteed that Christ's mission on earth will succeed and that all the ransomed church of God will get to see the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.